Good evening there, sloggy kiddos. It is Friday, October 20th, 2023, and I am ready to keep going through the book of John and our Chuck Black book, Kingdom's Edge. If we have time, I also might read something else. A little surprise. I think you'll like it. Well, let's get to the book of John. I think we're on chapter 17, aren't we? I like that because that means closer to chapter 21, which is the last chapter I read before I come home. All right, John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to you, and, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And that's the end of John chapter 17. Okay, kiddos, I'm going to go ahead and read an email I get from, his name is Pastor Francis Frangipan. It looks like Frangipane, but when Gideon and I listened to his sermons on, oh, and Garrison, when the boys and I listened to his sermons on the way down from Alaska to California, the lady uh, introducing him called him Pastor Frangipan. So anyways, Francis Frangipan Ministries, and this letter is called Into a, a Place of Abundance. Into a Place of Abundance, and it has to do a lot with Job and the lessons we learn from Job. So as I start reading, start keying your mind up to what you remember about the story of Job. And if you don't remember, we'll read it, okay? Well, we'll read some of it, because, wow, it's a tough one. It's a test in itself to read. Okay. Prior to releasing a new product to the general public, manufacturers put their invention through a series of tests to see how their product handles stress and other issues. Typically, they will test their product in a smaller control group before presenting it to the general public. Like stuffies, you guys. Like before squishimals were mass-marketed at Fred Meyers and Walmart, they sat down a bunch of kids with a bunch of squishmallows in a, you know, a place and said, Hey, what do you all think of this? So they tested out on a smaller control group before presenting it to the general public. This time of testing is sometimes called beta. It means it's still being tested repeatedly for effectiveness and functionality. Did it do what they projected it to do? 
Manufacturers don't want to spend a fortune in promotion without knowing their product will work outside the lab. They test it under stressed conditions. Once it passes the tests, then it is released. Just like rain boots. Like they're going to test a few batches of rain boots or extra toughs before they sell them because what if they leak? Okay. Next section is called a new creation. God has a new product in mind. At the end of the age, he intends to reveal a new species of man, a new creation, which is talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. The new man comes equipped with a Christ-like heart, a heavenly mind, and an eternal spirit. For now, however, the new man still looks like the old man, and prior to releasing the new man, we will face levels of testing. The more tests we pass, the more God releases us to the general public. Ooh, do you see that comparison there? God tests us? Right now, I would say most of us are in the beta stage. God is testing us to see if we can keep our hearts from bitterness or anger. Do we keep the faith even when we go through times of darkness or fear? The Lord desires to see how well we abide in Him when we are outside of church, which is the lab. The, these small test groups may consist of co-workers or church folks. They may be family members or neighbors. Are we maintaining the fruit of the Spirit? It is also important to note that when God tests us, He does not descend into our thought life with a loud public announcement, warning, This is a test. This is only a test. A true test examines what we are like under stress and in real-life conditions. It appears in our lives without forewarning that it is coming. You see, God isn't testing how well we can outwardly look Christian. He is examining the quality of what we actually are inwardly. Even more than possessing right answers, he desires we possess right attitudes and responses. He wants to know if we can function under adverse conditions, spiritual warfare, and stress. Whoa, that's pretty, pretty heavy duty there, kiddos. Okay, I'm going to keep reading. We have some time. So the next section is called Consider Job. Let us underscore this truth about God. He will test the quality of His work in us. Remember the Lord's conversation with Satan. God asked, quote, Have you considered my servant Job? Unquote. The Lord described Job as being unique in all the earth. Quote, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And that's Job chapter 1, verse 8. The implication in that question, have you considered Job, is that God had worked some deep things in Job, and now it was time for this inner transformation to be tested. Whoa, kids, do you see that? God allows us to be tested. 
after he does work on us, he allows us to be tested. And that's found in the book of Job. Let us also note that Satan has, quote, considered Job. He has a dossier. It just means a file or a folder or a bunch of information. He, Satan, has a dossier on him filled with information. When Satan sought to attack Job, the devil couldn't get near him. God had placed a, quote, hedge about Job and his house and all that he has on every side, unquote. Probably for many years, Satan had examined Job but couldn't touch him because of the impenetrable protection Job and his family enjoyed. For all the devil tried to do to stop it, God had, quote, blessed the work of Job's hands and his possessions have increased in the land, unquote. And that's Job chapter 1, verse 10. Yes, Satan had considered Job. We, too, would do well to consider the story of Job and the revelation it provides us concerning our tests and their outcome. If we walk with God in integrity and intercession, as did Job, we can trust that the normal status of our lives will be completely protected and hedged on Quote, on every side, unquote. That's pretty cool. We can trust that the normal status of our lives will be completely protected and hedged, quote, on every side, unquote, just like Job. The second thing that we should recognize is that if we do come under severe spiritual attack, it is because God is testing the quality of his work in us. He knows the capacity to overcome is within us. Otherwise, he would not have allowed the enemy access to us. The third thing to note is that while tests in the world are usually accomplished in labs or controlled environments, God's tests come in the real world. Thus, we might not realize that what we are going through is a test, For the test will be a real-life experience. Does that make sense, kiddos? A lot of events in our lives, maybe even everything in our lives, could be looked through the lens of being a test from God. Additionally, the test often comes just before we are released into a double portion. Guys, remember that one. Double portion which is what happened to Job. We often won't know what the test is until much later. Job's test was not whether he would, quote, rejoice always, unquote, or maintain his good works, nor was he made vulnerable because of his fear or unbelief, as some think. The great test in Job's life was whether or not he would curse God. For all he went through, Job passed his test. Next section. The outcome is greater than we can imagine, is the title. God took Job, the most righteous man in the world, a man of great influence, and brought him through a terrible test. Well, that's for sure. 
One might say that the cost of Job's test far outweighed his reward, even though Job did receive a double portion. Yes, Job's wealth and influence increased greatly, but that was not the end of the story. God has since used the life of Job as an example for billions of people. Well, that's totally true, isn't it, kiddos? Before the test, Job's range of influence touched his culture. Afterward, Job's integrity had inspired nations through the epochs of time. Likewise, the Lord tested Joseph, Moses, and David. He tested Israel in the wilderness. Jesus himself endured tests, not the least of which was his time in the desert. Let us understand, if we want to advance spiritually, which we all do, kiddos, God will lead us through fiery ordeals that test us, yet bring us through to a greater place. Most of us are still in beta, being tested in relatively small ways. Still others have gone through significant battles, but God is about to bring many into a double portion. And that's what Job got after he was done being tested. For us who are followers followers of Christ and whose goal is conformity to him, God gives us one answer to every test we experience. Become like Jesus in the test. When the devil realizes what he is, what he is using, hoping to destroy you, is actually being used by God to perfect you, Satan will withdraw his attack. As it is written, quote, For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. And that is Psalm chapter 66, verses 10 through 12. And the last line of Dr. Frangipan's letter is, The test is the door to abundance. The test is the door to abundance based on Psalm 66, verses 10 through 12. Okay, I know that was a little, a little, I don't know, not a kid's story, but you kids can handle it, because Dr. Frangipan is a very wise man, and he writes very well, and he loves God, and he has been tested a lot. And he always says, that everything in our life is to make us become more like Jesus. And that's pretty cool. I like that letter. The test is the door to abundance. So kiddos, if you feel like you're being tested, like Job was ever, just remember, God is allowing you to be tested. And he may be bringing you into a double portion of blessing on the other side, like Job. Okay.
Now we shall read our book, if I can find it on my phone. All right, where are we? Kingdom's Edge. We are on chapter 12, and let's see. Um, oh. Let's see here. Raymond and uh, Keith doctored up William, and they told William and Cedric, well, William was still recovering. Uh, they told Cedric basically about how the how Lucius turned on the king and the prince and recruited one third of the um, one third of the uh, silent warriors away in rebellion and they got kicked out because they couldn't stay in the kingdom anymore so anyways chapter 12 is titled night of knights the knights of the prince grew tremendously in numbers and the anarchy of the kingdom seemed to match our pace the kingdom of, of arethre was on the verge of self-destruction like a volcano ready to erupt we built and strengthened, but the dark night countered with discord and chaos. We sent recruiters for the prince to every city in the kingdom. We worked hard for years, and eventually nearly everyone, men, women, and children, heard the story of the prince and was given an opportunity to join us. It was during these years that many valiant men and women rose up to fulfill the mission of the prince. Our beloved city of Chessington seemed to be the dark night's focus. We began seeing more and more of the shadow warriors. They were disguised as commoners, but we could tell they were much more than that. The noble knights faded into history and either gave way or were absorbed into a new form of government. The city chose a strong man by the name of Alexander Histon as its governor. Strong is a broad description of Governor Histon. It applies to his physical strength as well as his political might. His charisma seemed to magnetize the people to his cause. I did not like him, nor was I fooled by his sweet rhetoric. As chaos increased, so did his control over the people. It was, quote, necessary, unquote. So Governor Histon said, quote, to maintain security and peace in the city. He convinced the people it was for their own good. The desperate citizens swallowed it all, for they had no choice. In the back of my mind, I wondered how much of the chaos was generated by Histon himself. It was just as Keefe had told me. Over the next year, Alexander Histon widened his sphere of influence to include most of the surrounding cities and villages. Histon scoffed at our story 
of the return of the prince and denied altogether the king's authority in the land. He labeled us as haters of peace and harmony, the very antithesis of what we were. His propaganda worked, and our mission became much more difficult. Serious persecution returned. Many of the knights of the prince were beaten and, and imprisoned for the crime of causing a disturbance in the city. My own scars testified to such atrocities. In spite of this, we still found people hungry for hope. They yearned for truth and peace with freedom as a companion. And the peace they tasted now was falsely induced under tyrannical rule. Eventually, Histon changed his title to Governor Supreme. It was clear to us that he cared for only one thing, total control of the entire kingdom. During these difficult times, our belief in the code is what kept us together. How long will this go on, Cedric? William asked as we walked toward the meeting place. Barrett's shop had been discovered and burned some time ago. We found a safer place for him and his family on the outskirts of the city, but our new meeting place was still in the heart of the city. It does seem nearly impossible to continue, doesn't it? I said. It's been so long since the prince left us, and yet I know he will be true to his word and deliver us from this bondage. The moon lit our path, and we moved carefully down the streets and alleys, ever vigilant to watch all sides. Ironic, isn't it? William said quietly. When we first met the prince, we felt we were in bondage to poverty. But now we know what true bondage is. I don't see any end to Histon's desire for power and control of the people. We turned onto the yet another alley and began walking down it. Nor do I, Will. I stopped mid-sentence and we both took cover in the shadows. Other men occupied the alley already. We were not seen, for they were too deep in conversation and they were walking our way. They paused some fifty feet away. Both men were broad and tall. I had never seen either one before, but I recognized their posture. Fear began to grip my heart, and I fought to maintain control of it. Though they were dressed in common clothes, I knew they were either silent warriors or shadow warriors. William and I froze in the shadows and strained to hear their conversation. They spoke softly, but their deep voices carried far enough for, it, for us to hear. Nearly complete with his preparation plans in the north, one of them said. How is Kelson doing in the south? We must be ready in all quadrants or the mission will be delayed. Time is short. The other one said, he is nearly ready, but I must tell you. Crash! A door beside the two figures burst open and a huge menacing man lunged toward the two figures with sword drawn. Across the alley, two more monstrous men flew toward the same two figures, each flashing a wicked-looking sword. In the blink of an eye, the two figures threw back their cloaks and drew their swords. 
Back to back, they faced their enemies. They had the look of serious determination, but not the look of hate that was on the faces of the, their three attackers. The swords flew at blinding speed. We heard a thunderous and continuous clash of steel upon steel. I had seen the skill of a silent warrior against mere men, and I had fought against a shadow warrior firsthand, but never before had I seen two such formidable, formidable forces meet face to face. The fight raged on in a flurry of slices, cuts, and thrusts. A precise picture of good versus evil. William, I whispered, we must help them. I am ready, he said. Though my stomach rose to my throat, we drew our swords and ran toward the battle. For the prince! William shouted. At those words, one of the shadow warriors left his fight and lunged toward us. Anger burned in his eyes. William and I traded offensive and defensive posturing to keep the shadow warrior distracted. Our past encounters with the shadow warriors had taught us a great deal, and we had grown in strength, skill, and experience. William defended against a combination, and I saw an opportunity, which I took. The shadow warrior screamed a curse at me as my sword passed under his left arm and separated the flesh beneath his ribs. He charged me with a full-force blow that sent me stumbling. He seized the momentary break in our fight to escape between two buildings, clutching his side as he went. We moved toward the other fight, but these shadow warriors also took flight. All of us scanned the area for further threat, but found none. After a moment of silence, interrupted only by heavy breathing, we sheathed our swords. Thank you for your help, one of the silent warriors said. Normally we avoid such confrontations, but lately it has not been possible. Their presence here is growing quickly. Yes, we've noticed as well, I said. What does it mean? He searched my face with narrow eyes. You are Cedric. I am, and this is William. We must go. Time is short, very short. Tell your people to be ready. He nodded to his companion toward one side of the alley, and together they left us quickly and quietly. Be ready for what? I asked, but there was no one to answer. Chapter 13 Over the next three days, we spread the message from Silent Warrior to the Knights of the Prince. Be ready. Of course, everyone repeated my statement with a question. Be ready for what? But before we could discover the answer, the kingdom of Erethre saw the dawn of total oppression. I awoke to a morning that was bright and cool, yet I felt a heavy darkness descend like a thick fog. I attributed, attributed it to a restless night's sleep, 
and tried to shake it off as I washed my face in cool water, but it lingered. Rob, William, and I journeyed to northern Chessington to organize a mission that would send us beyond our region. The city of Driscoll was in desperate need of supplies. Those who pledged allegiance to the prince were plundered daily by Histon's men. Though we suffered similar persecution in Chessington, our city was larger and afforded greater protection and supplies. For several weeks, we walked in vigilant silence. William spoke first. There is evil in the city today. I feel it too. Rob's ever-present grin was absent. We've done all we can to recruit people for the prince. Our numbers are great, but Histon's oppression and control increase with each passing day. How long must we carry on? Why must we carry on? I felt Rob's despair and was also growing weary of the fight. Our brothers and sisters were persecuted continuously. Histon wanted us out of his way, and I knew that persecution would soon turn to killing. Yet the prince was. Get your grimy paws off my fruit, you filthy little mutt. The sounds of a produce shop owner interrupted my thoughts. A young boy scampered over a barrel and knocked down the shop owner's fruit and vegetable, vegetable stand. The boy ran across the street with a stolen apple in hand. We winced at the string of... Oops. We winced at the string of cursing that followed. The shop owner's face was red with rage, and he emphasized each cursed with a clenched fist. The curses eventually subsided until he turned to see his produce scattered on the walk in the street. May we help you, sir? I asked as politely as possible, hoping to soothe his anger a bit. The man was barrel-chested with stocky legs to match. He looked middle-aged and had his curly dark hair was laced with wisps of gray. He glanced our way but his countenance had not changed. The anger in his face seemed to be a steady companion. You stay away from my food, he bellowed. I'm no fool to trust the likes of you nor any other thief in this city. He yelled over his shoulder toward the shop owner. Cassie, get out here and clean this mess up. Oh, toward the shop door, sorry. Get out of here and clean this mess up right now. Within seconds, a woman who appeared to be his wife emerged. I could see her beauty beneath the lines of strife and bruises of abuse on her face. She did not look up at us, but quickly moved toward the spill, taking care not to get too close to her husband. His lingering anger was still evident. He raised his hand to strike and vent his frustration as she passed. I would advise you not to do that, sir, William said as we stepped forward. The man turned to look at us. I will do as I please, and you will stay out of my business. It was enough distraction for his wife to pass by beyond his reach. The moment passed, and he 
cursed at us as he turned to right to his as and he cursed at us as he turned to right his produce stand rob's face displayed the anger we all felt as we stepped into the street to pass this shop of despair a few steps brought us to the man's wife and we knelt to help her fill a basket please no came a soft plea from her weathered lips just leave now or he will hurt me more the man was kneeling and reaching for a broken table leg near the base of his shop's front wall when he glanced up to see us giving aid to his wife you get your ah his screams seemed the result of searing pain he stood up to reveal a fire asp coiled around his forearm the fire asp is not only the deadliest snake in the kingdom but its effects on its victim are horrific. The poison is quick, and death is certain once it reaches the brain. Its length is a little longer than a man's foot, and its breadth is no bigger than around than a finger. It is brown in color, making it difficult to see until it strikes. When the skin of the asp changes to a fiery red, it is aggressive and bites only once. It then dies with its victim. The initial sensation around the bite is a torturous burning and swelling that spreads with the poison until searing pain permeates the entire body. As the poison enters the brain, the overwhelming pain drives the victim into madness. Death follows within moments of the initial bite. The shop owner continued to scream as he clutched his right arm with his left hand. Panic was evident on his face. William, Rob, quick, come with me, I shouted. We ran to the man and sat him on the ground. William, remove the asp with your knife. Rob, give him something to bite on and hold his arm steady. The man's wife slowly stood up and backed into the shop. Her mouth was open and shock was on her face. Stay as calm as you can, sir. The slower your heart beats, the better chance we have of saving your life. I said as gently as possible. My grandfather had once saved his brother from the poisonous bite of a fire asp, but I knew the odds were slim. I had never heard of any other victim living through the ordeal. I secured a leather strap around the man's upper arm and tightened it until no blood could flow in either direction. William finished remo removing the asp, and it lay limp and lifeless on the walk. The swelling was already spreading to the man's hand and to his upper arm. So was the pain. His legs shook violently, and the, clothes, and the cloth between his teeth was only slightly muffled his screams. William, quickly make some mud from the alley and bring it here. I said. I unsheathed my knife and opened a vein above and below the bite to spill the contaminated blood. I massaged his arm toward the cuts to empty the veins. I knew he might lose his arm, but it was his only hope. William returned with the mud. 
We must prick his arm in multiple places before we apply the mud, I told William. Rob was occupied holding down the man's other arm. I glanced at the man's shoulder to see if the poison had spread beyond my leather strap and was slightly relieved to see no evidence of swelling there. The small cuts we gave him hardly bled. A good sign, too. We quickly quickly encased his entire arm in thick, cool mud to draw the poison out. What's next, Cedric? William asked. Now we wait, gentlemen, I said. We will know in a moment if we are successful. I must loosen the strap and return blood to his arm, or he will lose it. But if I do this before the mud has drawn out the poison, it will spread and he will die. I looked for his wife, but she was gone. If we were successful, I wondered if I had condemned her to a slower, more painful death than her husband was facing. During such times, there is little time to think, only time to react. What would the prince do next, I wondered. Moments passed. The man was still breathing and had not gone mad. The mud was drying and the pain seemed to ease. I slowly loosed the leather strap and watched for the swelling to spread. The mud began to turn red from the new flow of blood to the cuts we had made in his arm. The swelling seemed to be contained, so we peeled the mud off. After washing his arm with clean water, we applied a clean bandage. Although his arm was twice its normal size, enough time had passed to know that he was not going to die. He wiped away the tears that ran down his face. We gave him some water to drink and leaned him against the front of his shop. Who are you? He whispered. I am Cedric. This is William and Rob. We are Knights of the Prince. He breathed deeply and closed his eyes. Thank you. Thank you, came a weak but sincere reply. I do not know why anyone would bother to save the likes of me. Even my wife is gone, and I do not blame her. We have seen the compassion of the prince and know that every man is worth saving, William said. Will you listen to our story of his love for the kingdom and for you? Rob asked. I am anxious to hear it, for I don't even know what kindness and love are, the man said. I have never seen nor felt them until today. What is your name, sir? I asked. I am called Derek. Please tell me of this man you call the prince. He was eager to hear our story of the king's great love for his people, a love so great that he sent his son 
to teach us and ultimately to die for us. We told of the prince's miraculous reappearance and of his promise to take us to a new kingdom where there is no hunger or despair. Each word of our story began to soften Derek's heart. A heart as hard as granite was slowly transformed to a heart ready to give and receive compassion. The story of the prince does that to men. It breaks them down, removes the rubble, and builds a castle where there once was a prison. Derek wiped more tears from his eyes. This time they were tears of repentance and joy. Please come to my house for a meal, Derek pleaded. I want you to meet my family. We traveled one street to the east of his shop and found ourselves approaching the door of his home. Two small, frightened faces peered out the window as we approached. When we entered his home, the children did not run to greet their father. They each darted to a corner to hide behind a piece of furniture. His wife, Cassie, was shocked to see that he was alive, and she slowly moved to the back of the room. Derek walked slowly toward his wife. She looked like a cornered mouse, too afraid to move. I thought she might collapse from her fear. The little boy and girl seemed to know what was coming and buried their heads in their knees, covering their ears with little hands. Cassie, Derek said in a hushed, quavering voice. Tears rushed to his eyes once again and flowed down his cheeks. I am so very sorry. He dropped to his knees before his wife. His large shoulders heaved with each sob. How can you ever forgive me? His hand reached to gently touch the hem of her tattered skirt. Cassie looked at Derek's bowed head for a moment, perhaps waiting for this horrible trick to end. She looked at her children and then at us. I smiled and nodded to affirm the reality of Derek's transformed heart. She slowly moved her calloused hand to Derek's head. It was a gesture of forgiveness, though she could not yet speak the words. Her eyes welled up with tears, and I knew her heart wanted to believe the unbelievable. How could years of, ab of abuse be stripped away in an afternoon? It was an emotional reconciliation for everyone. The children were surprised at the silence and stole a peek to see their father humbled on the floor before their mother. Derek looked up and beckoned for his children. Slowly, they left their cover and cautiously approached Derek. The girl pre 
placed a protective arm around her little brother. Daddy, please don't hurt us anymore, said the tender little voice of the girl. Derek carefully leaned toward to span the remaining distance between him and his children. He gently brought them into his arms, and his weeping deepened. I promise I will never hurt you or your mother ever again, he said. I love you, children. Their little arms wrapped around his neck, and I was certain it was the first time they had felt their daddy's love. Derek slowly stood and let Cassie look at his moist face. Her eyes were full and her lips quavered as she yielded her heart to the truth that Derek was a new man. I love you, Cassie. I hope there's room left in your heart to love me, even just a little. Derek's arms encircled her with a morning embrace of love. Oh, Derek, Cassie said, and she melted into his embrace. I leaned toward Rob. This is why we must carry on, my brother. And that is the end of chapter 13. Wow, that's very powerful, kiddos. I'm going to be done. That's we're probably getting close to having our time up. Okay. Well, I love you kiddos very, very much. And I hope you're enjoying the book. I hope you enjoyed that writing by Pastor Fran Japan. And also the chapter in John. It's Friday night. I hope you guys are enjoying yourselves and having fun. And hope you all have a great day tomorrow. I'll be praying for you, and I can't wait to see you. Love y'all. Night, night.